Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Melissa Shabin, the founder and CEO of Virtue Labs. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks. Nice to be here. So you're a longtime beauty veteran, Melissa. You were CEO of Strivectin. You were CEO of Frederick Fakai before they sold. Um, You've been around the block. So when you thought about launching Virtue Labs and what you thought you could offer, tell me what the story was. What were you you seeing? Well, first of all, long term is code for old. No, no. (laughs) I have been around a long time. Um, So... You know, it it was an amazing piece of technology, and I'm very cynical. I've been doing this a long time, and oftentimes with biotech, they think that uh, personal care or consumer products is easy, and I think, you know, these guys sold me hard that they had a very unique piece of technology that would revolutionize the skin and hair care business. And I was sort of, hmm, I've heard that before in my lifetime. But the truth of the matter is, is they had developed a process to extract keratin from human hair. And the keratin that we have in the industry is all animal byproduct. So it's hooves and feathers and beaks, and it's, you know, processed and acid washed at high heats. And it breaks up into amino acids. And this um, piece of technology is actually a full human protein. Um, you know, I have to tell you that it wasn't designed for hair care. There's been tens of millions of dollars spent. And it's really designed for traumatic injury. And primarily traumatic uh, injury that happens uh, on the battlefield. So it's very important to us that we um, stay true to the scientist who is actually a retired colonel in the Army. Uh, to his vision, which was really the greater good. Um, It just happens to work on hair. Tell us a little bit about this process. You said human hair and you're extracting the keratin from human hair. Mm -hmm. How does that happen? So let's back up just a little bit. So, you know, the real inventor here is a guy by the name of Dr. Luke Burnett, and he actually runs Keratinetics, which is a therapeutic company. And his He's also um, was a colonel in the army and did two tours in Iraq, as as we've talked about. And his um, thesis in developing out this process that is now patented multiple times was if he could create a human byproduct keratin, uh, that he would be able to help people who were traumatically injured, and primarily from his perspective, soldiers that were traumatically injured. Um, And he started with barbershop sweep-ups, and it, it was good and it was interesting. And the whole process is really around extraction. So how do I get the outer cortex of the hair off? And how am I left with a full functioning protein? And really what he found is he needed virgin hair. And, you know, interestingly enough, you know, China is a huge resource of wigs and extensions. So and is India. Is, so is India. But here's the problem with India. The temples take the money. Right. So we didn't want to be involved with the sects, the religious sects that were taking the hair. You buy it from the temples and then the temples don't pay the people whose hair they're taking. And it has a history. There's a history there. Um, so we actually um, we, we we buy the hair from a broker in, in Asia. Adir and I went and we went down deep into the supply chain. Fascinating. And people um, sell their hair. And, and they're, you know, they're 16, 17, 18 years old. Uh, they're working in on farms. Um, there's It's a $6 billion industry, the extension of wig industry. And we use the parts that they don't 
the wigs and the extensions can't use. We use the short hairs. So we can only process hair at about an inch and a half. I'm probably giving up too much information here, but, but, um, and so we get the byproduct of wigs and ex extensions. So, uh, so essentially what happens when someone uses a virtual labs product, you know, say shampoo, you're washing your hair with the shampoo. Uh -huh. So what happens then with the keratin that's been extracted? So, so the keratin, because it's like to your own human hair and your own keratin, uh, deposits into a damaged site. So you're washing the hair. And typically, as we think about shampoos, they're commodities, right? They have a job to do. They're like, you know, I'm going to cleanse the hair. That's their job. Uh, their job is not to be therapeutic. This just happens to heal the hair as well. So where you have a damaged site, and damage can be anything. It can be weakness, lack of moisture, broken. Um, it adheres to the exact size and shape of that damaged site. And where you don't have damage, it washes off. So that's why you're seeing all of this, you know, complete reparation of split ends. You're seeing increased density of 22% per follicle. You're seeing, you know, complete frizz because it, this keratin is actually seeing where that is. And like a GPS system goes to that spot, it fills it in. And what's interesting about Color Kick, it's a completely natural product. This is the powder that goes into hair color. It takes on the color that you're dyeing your hair and fills that keratin, fills that protein back in. So less damaged hair when you color. That's right. You're, that, you're, 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 you're coloring your hair healthy. And, you know, when you color hair, you're breaking the disulfide bond, right? You're cracking it open and the keratin's leaching out. Well, we put it back in. So when you were thinking about bringing this kind of complicated and also revolutionary technology to hair care, which is traditionally probably the last thing in a woman's beauty routine. First, right. it's before, I think before it was her makeup, then it was her skincare, then it was her hair care. Now we're seeing that shift quite a bit. Um, what did you think you could do and why did you think the customer would care? Well, initially, I, I really was unsure about what this molecule could do. And, and we spent quite a bit of money in, in traditional clinical trials. We actually went in like a pharma company and looked at a bunch of consumers and we measured the hair through both through photographs and um, through all sorts of measurements. And what we saw was complete reparation. So oddly... Um, and you're right. Uh, historically, hair care has been, because they're wash-off ingredients, there's not a lot of money spent on R&D. Um, you, know, you might get some arguments for some people, but it's the truth. It's the same puzzle pieces. We just move them around in different, in different order. Um, and it's usually smell and packaging that attracts you. Uh, this technology was actually binding naturally to the uh, broken sites in your hair. So every day, not you, Priya, because mm -hmm. you've got great hair, oh, but um, <gasps> we damage our hair every day. You know, think about you put 450 degree heat through a blow dryer on your hair and think about if you did that to your skin. So you're fracturing your hair and salting your hair every single day to get a, a, a visual outcome. Um, what this does is it allows you to do that but get you a healthy visual outcome. So, and I think you're right. I mean, I think women today are just thinking much more about health and wellness versus just appearances. And I think it's translating to hair now. It's like the most beautiful hair is the healthiest hair. So, Melissa, when you were starting out, you did a very heavily and rigorous sampling campaign with yep. real women, wanted to see what they loved, what they didn't love. You were going to market D2C first. Right. Tell us a little bit about that process before you went to market. Well, as you said, you know, it's hard to differentiate yourself with words. I'm saying the same thing everyone else is saying. Shinier, richer, healthier, you know, consumers... You know, I, I can't say anything different about the benefits. What I can do is actually deliver 
on the promise. And so it was very important for us to get consumers' actual interpretation of what was happening to their hair. And it was shocking. It's an, it's an, it's an odd um, experience for me after many years, and it's, uh, this isn't to degradate anything else we've done, but when you over-deliver on promises where, that people have heard for their entire life, you're going to be younger, you're going to be thinner, you're going to be blah, 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 blah. The product over-delivers, and, and women are, primarily women, men too, but are shocked, and they're thankful. You know, in a strange way, it's sort of like, wow, you really did what you said you were going to do. And you know, hair is a, a very important um, part of women's confidence, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's just, you know, when you your hair looks good and you, you just got a, you got a full skip in your step. And, you know, we're suffering from all sorts of degradation of health of hair. You know, six in 10 women will experience some form of hair loss after the age of 35. And it's pollution. It's what we do. Uh, it's the products we use. It's um, stress. It's hormones. There's all of these factors. And so if we can help a little bit, it makes for a rewarding experience for us as a company. How much of this was a little bit of, you know, we're seeing in the market this skinification of hair, you know, treating your hair just as you would your skin and the value that people are now putting on better skin and that that is actually going to give a person a better experience and an appearance. Do you think, did you see that happening overall with customers or were you ahead of that? Were you in line with that? So I can answer this two ways. I'm brilliant and I saw it coming <laughs> or I got lucky and I got lucky. I mean, I've been in hair, I've been in this business a long time, lots of different categories. This, the story of this company, now remember, we've only been in market two years, but we've been at it for almost eight. The story of this company is a succession of serendipity, good luck, having the tenacity to push through um, some of these things. But we happened to just be in the perfect storm where the technology was remarkable. I didn't go into this. I didn't leave uh, my, my previous position saying, oh, I'm going to go build a wellness hair care company. I got a call from my buddy, Sean Westfall, at Ben Piper, now Jeffries, and he said, can you go look at this technology and see what, if it's real? And everything from that point forward was running into the right people, getting some of my old team back, um, the, it, it being a remarkable piece of technology, but not easy to work with. She's a feisty little protein. She gives us a hard time. I mean, we, we manufacture it ourselves in Winston-Salem. I didn't want to be in the raw ingredient business. I'm a marketer, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, in life, in love, in business, you get lucky sometimes. And you're smart enough to take that opportunity and run with it. And that's what happened here. Just happened to be in the right place at the right time. So... The reviews were out of this world when Insane. you first launched and the awards around and the buzz around Virtue Labs was as well. I imagine many retailers came to you and came running, mm -hmm. especially with your history and your background. So why were you so bullish on D2C then and how do you feel about it now? Partly it was proving out that the consumer, the KPIs, would be successful. So getting it into customers' hands and being able to navigate customers through the journey and, and being able to tell the story directly, like I do to you or, or to Beth or, or any, anybody, um, it was really important. And I didn't think without that we would able to be able to convince a retailer who is chock full of brands to give us a shot. 
Um, and I have great respect for my uh, competitors. And Danny Kaner is a very good friend of mine, Danny and Sonia, at Orbe. And um, I thought we had to earn a little bit before we sort of knocked on Marla's door. It's very funny. So Marla and Barry Beck, you know, from Blue Mercury, Marla's an old friend. And um, about three or four years ago, I was crossing paths with her at, in, in LaGuardia Airport. She was on one tram and I was on the other. And I was like, I screamed, hey, Marla. And she was like, hey, what are you doing? I said, hair care. She goes, call me. And literally, I picked up the phone and I said, I need you to hold my hand for a year. And she used the brand and we've known each other. And we went exclusively with Blue Mercury for a year and just let her and Barry guide the brand and learned and listened. And very quickly, uh, through Marla's guidance and tutelage, made it a pretty pretty nice success for Blue Mercury. And, and then opens other doors. And we were true to our word. We, we stayed committed to Blue Mercury. We, we sampled their customer. We learned. We took their advice. And that, you know, catapulted the brand a little bit. So will you go back a little bit, Melissa, when you think about the sampling piece, because mm -hmm. not only is this um, a great piece of technology, but it also requires the product to be much more expensive yes. than the average yeah. um, shampoo or conditioner mm -hmm. you're buying in Target or Walmart yeah. or Sephora yeah. even. So when you're thinking about that piece, how expensive the product is, and then also the sampling exercise and being DWC first and maybe having to push money into those digital channels. Right. I mean, this was a large investment from yes. the get. Yes. So how were you able to kind of stay true to that and maybe not go the retail route and blow up much faster? Um, supportive investors, <laughs> which I still have. Uh, and the belief that we needed to understand the frequency of her purchasing patterns. What we is that? She's buying every 60 days, and 40% uh, of the consumers are repeating four-plus times. And how so old is the, she? Tell us more about She's a little bit her. older. She's, yeah. you know, look, it's an expensive price. And, and, you know, let's talk about price a little bit because, listen, if I had my druthers, the price would be much cheaper. Honestly, I, I want it to help everybody. And my mom... Uh, just going through the last round of chemo, and it's been incredible for her. I've watched her hair come back, and, you know, it's brought so much light to her life. Um, I would like it to be less expensive. I really would. Uh, the protein is expensive. You know, it probably makes up 50% of the cost of goods, one ingredient. Now, in hair care, ingredients are pennies. They're not dollars. Will you tell our listeners how much your products cost or the range? Yeah. So so the shampoos are 38, the conditioners are 40. And so my cog, my cost of goods, you know, I mean, about four bucks is the protein. Wow. So, you know, I had a skincare product in my history where the retail price point was $135 and the cost of goods was four. Those comparison. margins, yeah. So we're working hard, um, working hard to get scale and working hard to get the cost out of the manufacturing process. Um, you know, like I said, we've got 15 people down in Winston-Salem that do nothing but process this protein every day. Uh, we're in the old RJR Reynolds um, animal inhalation facility. So really gross, but from something really bad, something good can come. And, um, you know, I will say about the product, though, a little goes a long way. And what we hear is uh, anecdotally, this isn't clinical trials. People are washing their hair less with this product and you only need a little bit. You emulsify it in water and it gives you a full lather. It's very luxurious, but it's also sulfite-free, dye-free, phthalate-free. You know, it's vegan, it's gluten-free. It's, it's just not free. <laughs> 
when you were thinking about retailers and that kind of expansion plan, you obviously had um, the ammunition in your pocket that said, okay, this works. Mm-hmm. People are buying at this rate. This is this customer and it's an expensive product and it works. Mm-hmm. So when you were thinking about retail distribution, even your online piece, which we'll get to mm-hmm. in a second with Amazon, what was important to you? Um, that the, the retailer would give the brand a chance not a free ride, but a chance. And they would understand what Marla did, which was to say, I believe, I'm a, I'm a user, I'm a fan, and I'll give you a footprint that gives you awareness. And then my commitment was, I will sample until I'm bloody. Because the real the real lever that we have is, is we have instant transformation of hair. And so once you use it, you kind of are... Hooked. There, you're hooked, and 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 then there's a cost to exit, exit, right? When you when you find yourself in the shower in a hotel room somewhere, and you forgot your virtue products, your travel sizes, you end up using uh, the amenities, and you're like, oh my god, my hair is awful today, and it there's a cost to exit. So our job as marketers is to get the product into as many hands. That's the best thing we can do is spend money on giving it to you for free and earning your business and earning your trust. And once that happens, um, there's a, re- a pretty deep relationship that occurs. I've never seen anything like it in my career. And I've had some good companies. Like Frederick Fakai was a great company. Strivectin was a great company. Um, Aveda, great company. Uh, this is very unlike anything I've ever seen. People, you know, thank me. You know, typically that's not what happens with CEOs. You know. Melissa, I have to ask. How expensive is that sampling process? I understand that trial is so important in hair, yeah. but it's got to be expensive. It's huge. I mean, and and so it it probably represents you know fifty percent of our marketing budget, which is probably a million and a half dollars um, of purely sampling. And then we sample salons too, and salons get a huge kit. So you know, we spent between salons and consumer yesterday last year probably two million dollars sampling product to people, but. Would print advertising do that? Would would you know if you look at your ROI against those samples? And I spend twenty bucks or twenty five dollars on a customer to get her, and get her hooked, and then she's worth you know five or six hundred dollars to me from a business perspective, and she's happy. It's crazy not to do it. Do you think that that's more effective now, especially with all the digital advertising restraints? Totally, totally. Talk a little bit about that. So. I mean, look, the free lunch with digital advertising is over. We're all feeling the pain of the algorithm shifts and Facebook changes and Insta changes. And I think influencers, too. I mean, look, at the end of the day, why in, why I think influencers worked was it, it appeared authentic. And when things become inauthentic or uh, salacious and become self-absorbed, I mean, you know, you go to a celebrity events and half the people there are notable influencers what is that you know what, what is that, is that? You tell me I, I don't know um you know so I, I think that we're, we're we're titrating back now a little bit to some traditional uh marketing efforts um we're using uh the authentic relationships uh we're using direct mail again tell uh, me about that well the reality is is um you know, we walked away from those things because those things didn't yield. You know, mar- marketers are funny and advertisers are funny, right? Something takes off and everybody chases everything. You know, everyone runs down that one street and says, this is the new way. And companies like Warby Parker and companies like Harry Shave and Casper, Casper, they, they start this trend. And then big companies feel like, oh, my God, I got it. 
I got to do that too. And, and the reality is sometimes we walk away from the traditional things that have built brands, not businesses. It's easy to build a business. It really is. It's really hard to build a sustainable brand. I mean, we hear about the successful ones like, you know, maybe Drunk Elephant or, you know, whatever. You don't hear about all the ones that fail. And, you know, I think, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to come back to there's no more print. So how do I get to you? How do I talk to you? It's, you know, now it's digital, but it's also outdoor, in home. What do you think about out of home? Because especially with the lack of data piece to it, yeah. is that something that you guys are exploring, yes. you want to do? But let's, let's go back to data for a second. So here's the deal. I know where she is. I know the zip code she's in. What zip code is she? Yeah, you know, she's, she's my zip code in Raleigh, North Carolina and Nashville. So thinking out of home the way we used to think of it, which was bus shelters and stands and subway stations, mm-mm. it's the kids' local football game. That's out of home. Right. That's getting, it's getting, it's getting real. It's getting down with like, I know you. Like, I know where you are. I know what's important to you. So you're not going to have billboards in no. the New York City subways no. or no. in L.A.? No, I'm going to be at my kid's school doing a, buying a page in the yearbook and, and thanking all my local customers. I'm going to know that, you know, in that zip code, I've got 50 customers and I'm going to make sure that I treat them with respect and dignity and I talk to them directly. I know how old they are. I know what products they use. I know if they color their hair. So I can serve them content that's appropriate for them. That's a relationship. When I stick one ad around the world and think that it works for everybody, I mean, that's crazy. We all look different. We all have different families. We all have different loves. We have all different likes. You know, the beauty of that D to C, the really what it does, it allows you to communicate to your customer based on a cohort group. If you're 55 years old and living in Florida, you know, I know you're going to deal with humidity from April till October and I can talk to you and I know you're, you know, processing your hair with two different colors and all those kinds of things. I can give you the, the products that you need. I can help you to have a better outcome because so I think, know you. So you think of D2C nowadays is more of a capability That's versus right. say a business model. That's right. I do. So how does that play back to say what you're doing with Sephora, uh-huh. which you recently yep. went into as well as with Amazon? So, Amazon is a, uh, in life, is, is not a choice anymore. It is the way in which you and I both shop. Buy whether everything. it's, I mean, whether it's home goods or it's whatever it is. We, we, we all interface with Amazon. So being there is a must. I sell to salons. So if I'm not going to do it, they're going to do it to me. But how do you structure that relationship? Because that's very tricky. Yeah. The professional business mm-hmm. wants the product just through them. I right. don't want it to be in necessarily mass channels. You know, we saw this with Ulta right. several years ago, and right. now we're seeing it with Amazon. Right, right. Well, the salons are, are are figuring it out, right? And they have no choice but to accept. And that's what they'll say to me. You know, Melissa, you go, are you on Amazon? Yes, I am. And they'll say, well, how does that affect me? I said, it, it doesn't. The woman who's going to pick up her product with you, you have a relationship with. Now, occasionally, she may buy off of Amazon, but then you... You need to do a better job at your experience in store. I need to make sure you have a unique suite of products that are conducive to service and not just retail. And then we also have an affiliate program. So we have the ability 
as a salon or a booth renter, you can come on and you don't ever, ever have to take ownership of the product. You just sell the product and we pay you to sell the product and you get 20% for that. And is that in salons or is that also via Amazon? It's just in salons. So um, it's really figuring out how all channels rise at the same time. We have such low awareness at this point. Um, it's funny, one of our ambassadors, you know, I mean, when you talk to the salons, uh, Dustin uh, Smith, who works for us in Raleigh, has a big salon and he was real cranky about the Amazon thing. And I was just with him uh, in London recently and he said to me, it really didn't affect me at all because my customer is loyal to me and she loves the product and I'm using the product. She's experiencing the product through me. And so I've seen no degradation in any of the businesses uh, as we've broadened the distribution. How did you feel about Amazon's play, though, to go after the stylists at salons uh-huh. to incentivize them to say, hey, you know, I'm going to buy Virtue Labs on Amazon, but uh-huh. then they get a cut off of everything else, right. whether it's Clorox yeah. or, yeah. you know, sheets or brooms. I, I think, you know, they, they, they're they smart. They understand <laughs> channel conflict. They, un- they, they, they understand the fact that if you burden one sector of business with another sector of business, it's problematic. And, you know, the interesting thing about Amazon for a no- enormous company, I mean, it is so fluid. It it changes every day. They they literally can adjust their model in real, in real time. The other thing they offer, uh, like Gourmet, like Danny, uh, we, we're on luxury. So it costs us a lot more. Um, we started with a price increase. We went up higher right. than the salon price to try and deter people from going on Amazon a little bit. Uh, but it wasn't working. It didn't matter. So um, does it match now? Yeah, it's matching now. Um, you know, I'd like to figure out a way where they benefit a little bit. Um, the salons, you know, if we took a portion of the proceeds that we, we get on Amazon, it went back into back bar or free goods or something like that. I think we're working towards, towards that, but with luxury, you're allowed to gate people out. So what you really want to worry about is pricing. So how do you work with resellers then? Does that We gate them out. You know, we only let, if you don't, if you don't, there are things you have to abide by, uh, and standards for our brand that you have to abide by. If you don't abide by that, then we'll, we'll throw you off. And that's what luxury offers you, right? You, that's you de- net. Yeah, yeah. You determine who can resell your your products on Amazon. If you want to be the only one, then you're the only one. If you want to let a couple of people sell because they've been good stewards of the brand, then we do that too. So you see the kind of affiliate program, yeah. the salon business, and this all kind of working together. It has to. You know, everybody has to win. Look, I mean, I want to say this carefully because it sounds derogatory, but you know, salons finance very big companies, businesses, right? They have to buy the inventory and hold the inventory before, huge they, investment. Mm-hmm. before they sell anything. It's it's weird, right? You've got, you know, $50 billion companies that are saying to a guy who's got a $200,000 a year business, you got to buy $25,000 worth of inventory. you got to hold it. And it's your money, your credit card. That's not fair. Right. We should be doing, we have to find better ways, you know, whether it's afterpay or whatever it is, where we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. One wins, we all win. One loses, we all lose. You know, these these stylists help to build brands. And when they get sold for hundreds of millions of dollars, they don't get anything. Right. They just get diluted. So talk to me a little bit about Sephora. Yeah. You know, that's obviously a very different customer, a yep. very um, affluent customer, mm-hmm. very trend-oriented as well. But, you know, in some areas, one could have argued, why didn't you go into Ulta that already had that professional mm-hmm. business? Mm-hmm. Why Sephora? What's happening? Um, it's It's less painful for the 
the salons, quite frankly. Really? Uh, they see it, yes, they see it less as a conflict. I see. Um, I know Priya a long time. Um, Great name. Yeah, yeah, right? And I feel protected a little bit with Sephora. I think Ulta would be a stretch for us, uh, given the demands and the size. And I think the way to build the brand, I mean, I think Sephora does a very good job of building brands. And I think Ulta does a very good job of commercializing businesses. So at our stage, we really felt secure. It has They have a global footprint, which allows us to have a bigger relationship. Um, and I think we can, we can be a, a, a very important brand of hair brand for Sephora, uh, which is not, you know, that's not their biggest category, as we all know. And so I, I think it, we, 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 fit, we fit each other's needs right now. So remind me, Melissa, if this is correct. If I remember correctly, before Fakai sold to Procter & Gamble, mm-hmm. that was the number one hair brand in Sephora. Oh, my God, by leaps and bounds back then, yeah. So talk to me today about what that biz- that hair business opportunity is in Sephora and also what it requires now because it's not just, you know, putting something on a shelf. It's, yeah. it's educating the cast. It's sampling. It's it's all of the above. Yeah. I mean, you know, look at the end of the day. They, they have their online business is, you know, huge. Um, and that makes some things easier, right? How so? Well, I think you protect the pipe. So, so what we would do historically is try to get into every single door and, you know, clog the, the, clog the system with inventory. And then, you know, the, the C stores, the smaller stores would be sitting on inventory and the big stores, there would be no open to buy. And, you know, it was just a constant nightmare. And, and not every store is alike. Um, and so I think navigating your business, you control the outcome a little bit, um, so it's a it's an advantage, uh, and and Sephora is really good at digital. I mean, you know, they're bidding on terms, they're getting their customer. She loves her points, she loves her free goods, she loves the, you know, she loves to be a part of the Sephora uh, family, and I think, um, you know, it will be we'll sample hard, we'll be aggressive. We, um, you know, we have a deer, so we're very uh, lucky, um, and. You know, the consumer is just more digitally savvy. So it allows us to get into her home, into her phone, into her head in a more cost-effective way. Do you expect sampling costs to go up this year yes. in terms of marketing? Yes, exponentially. Exponentially. And what about your own D2C business? Now that she can buy it on Sephora.com yeah. and you may not be getting that customer data from yeah. Sephora, right. I mean, not. how is this going to be supplemented? So it's a, it's a great question and it's one I, I'm asked frequently, especially by uh, board and investors. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there's going to be you're, – you're going to siphon some people away. I mean, you know, I had a board member said to me, well – I don't know what happened, but I just had bought it on Amazon. I was like, great, that's really awesome. My gross margins are really different on Amazon than they are direct. Um, I think it's about the relationship. I think if we can build a database of 3 million folks uh, across the country uh, that we know and uh, we can serve them up content and we can treat them in a way that they want to be treated by a brand, I think there'll be a portion of people that will always feel connected to us and connected to a deer, connected to me. I mean, we handle customer service directly. You know, my, my phone rings and it's a customer from Nashville and she got the wrong product. And, you know, we, we literally um, are that hands-on and hopefully stay that way because that's the difference, really. Um, there'll be erosion, but, but at the end of the day, it, it shouldn't matter to us if the brand is resonating and doing its job. 
Yeah, gross margin's a little different here or there, but at the end of the day, I have to be where she wants me to be, not where I want to be. If it's convenient for her to grab and go in Sephora, then I got to be there. If it's convenient for her to throw it into Amazon when she's doing her Amazon Prime, then that's our job. Our job isn't to say, I care more about the, the, the place that you buy the product than I care about you, the customer, right? That's the way it used to be. You know, it used to be like, oh, I'm exclusive at so-and-so. Well, then, you know. Who does that serve? Nobody. It's, it serves the retailer and it serves the manufacturer. It doesn't serve the customer because it's not convenient for her. One last question, Melissa, sure. even though I could have you here all day. You know, we started this conversation about with this protein, with this technology. Mm-hmm. And I know when you started Virtue Labs, you really were focused around assortment and you didn't want to overskew, right. which is a huge problem in the hair yeah. category. But I have to ask, when you think about growth and you think about next year and assortment, what's happening and is skincare in the pipeline? We actually have sold the rights to skincare. So to a, to a, to one of our investors, it would have been a, a, a little bit of a distraction, I think. But you know, interesting with this technology, we have a unique opportunity because we have levers to pull. So we have nail, um, and we have accretive categories. We actually um, we have a, a product that goes into hair color that's a hundred percent natural called Color Kick. Spectacular results for a colorist. I mean, just really amazing for the outcome of damaged hair and keeping the color vibrant. And uh, we also have hair growth coming, which is super exciting. And we can do really spectacular things there. So you have these accretive things. Most of us have to exploit, you know, skew rationale uh, because that's how you, it's pipe, that's how you grow. We don't, we don't have to do that because the protein and the technology is so powerful, we can go to accretive categories and say, okay, bolt off, I can bolt on another $10 million worth of growth with, care care, with hair growth or with nail care or with color kick. And that's the luxury of being really a biotech company and not a personal care company. Melissa, last, last question. What are your projections for 2020? 25 plus million. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Also, Glossy Beauty is turning one next week. And each week, we've had more and more of you tuning in. We can't thank you enough for keeping us in your earbuds. We look forward to another year of bringing you all the beauty and wellness conversations with the industry's biggest entrepreneurs. Tune in for a special episode next week before our regular programming resumes on Thursday. See you then. See you then.